I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about the conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. Although after this episode, you might not want to follow us on Twitter. That's, that's up to you. <laughs> because for episode 102, we read... Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, an article by Jonathan Haidt published in the Atlantic Magazine in April 2022. John Haidt was born in New York City and raised in Scarsdale, New York. He earned a BA in philosophy from Yale University and a PhD in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. He taught at the University of Virginia from 1995 to 2011, then moved to NYU's Stern School of Business. Height's main area of study is the psychological field of moral foundations theory. The theory attempts to explain the evolutionary origins of human moral reasoning on the basis of innate gut feelings rather than logical reason. So he's also applied his theory to political ideology, and that's what he's doing here, I think, in this article. So he uses this analogy of the Tower of Babel, which many of us remember from the Bible. He says, the story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America in the 2010s and for this fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong, very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. And if you recall, in the Tower of Babel, the people were building this tower to reach the heavens, to reach God, and God cursed them and... If you remember, the Lord confounds the, their language, and so all the those who are building the tower, they end up speaking different languages and so forth. And so he's using this analogy here to say that sometime in the 2010s, we also had our language confounded. He says, it's been clear for quite a while now that Red America and Blue America are becoming like two different countries claiming the same territory with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. But Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that seemed solid, the scattering of people who had been a community. It's a metaphor for what is happening not only between red and blue, but within the left and within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families. Babel, he says, is a metaphor for what some forms of social media have done to nearly all of the groups and institutions most important to the country's future and to us as a people. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's getting at some things that we remember from back in episode 84 when we read uh, Martin Gurry's book. And he cites Gurry here, too, as saying sort of the high point of techno-optimism came in 2011. There's a way Heights describing it here is when the internet first came out, you know, there weren't that many people on it yet, and it was still very much a first world thing. And even within first world nations, it was not everyone on it. It didn't drive the conversation. It was just sort of an, an extra way to get information or news or talk to people or meet up with people. And it was it did bring people together in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, all sorts of groups, not about politics, even just, you know, hobbyists or, you know, people who are interested in a certain TV show or whatever. They could they, they could get together even though they didn't live near each other or or, you know, share anything else in common. And it was great. And it led to a lot of optimism about like, this is really gonna, 
bring humanity together. This is great. And I, I remember thinking that at the time. I thought, you know, this could make the really ideal republic. We're going to be well-informed because it's so easy to get knowledge. It's so easy to get news and, you know, smart analysis and facts and all sorts of things that could let people know what's really going on in the world. Because so often we vote or, or act based on incomplete information or, you know, it's, I mean, that's a real optimistic view that a lot of people were sharing of the tech and, and what it was going to do to humanity. And then this sort of tipping point came and height points at the same point. Gurry points it right there. He says the height of the techno democratic optimism was arguably 2011, the year that began with the Arab spring and ended with the global Occupy movement. That was also when Google translate became available on virtually all smartphones. So you could say 2011 was the year humanity rebuilt the tower of Babel. And again, you know, I, I remember reading that, that the story of Babel, like, I don't know, Sunday school or something, you know, when you first come across it and like, well, why would God be mad? We all spoke the same language. That seems kind of good, right? Like, what, shouldn't right. we talk to each other? It's one there's a lot. There's a lot of Old Testament stories that are, you know, it, they're puzzlers, you know, like, <laughs> um, but that's, that's part of religion too, is trying to, is sometimes what happened is, is harder to figure out than what's going on today. But certainly I thought that, things like Google Translate were great. I mean, so often, I mean, it, a lot of stuff is in English, but if you're in a different country and, you know, if you speak a smaller language, then this, that, that gives you access to, again, the world's learning, all of these different things. We can talk to each other. It would have been great. And it's just bizarre how um, completely humanity has taken this amazing innovation or, or series of innovations and turned it into a way to just be mad at each other in new and different ways, even more quickly than ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so recent. So you're saying 2011 and he quotes that here and Gurry quotes 2011 as well. 2008 is basically when Facebook became the dominant platform, beat out uh, MySpace and Friendster and whatever else. Now there's 3 billion users. He points out that in 2009, Facebook he said offered users a way to publicly like posts that happened in 2009. So you could like in 2009 and then retweet and then share. So all of those buttons were created and that essentially, he says Facebook developed an algorithm to bring each user, the content most likely to generate a like or some other interaction. And so researchers showed that posts that trigger emotions, especially anger at out groups are the most likely to be shared. So at the very beginning, I wasn't even on Facebook, so I'm just going to have to take his word for it. Uh, <laughs> I was yeah. a very late uh, user, but apparently, you know, it's, it's probably, I guess, a little bit more like Instagram where you have, you have stories and people were talking about what they ate for lunch and so forth, and you just followed your friends. But then what happens is the, the retweet, the like, the share buttons, those become tools for the algorithm to start understanding what works and what doesn't and how to get people to stay on the platform. And obviously when Twitter came along, the same thing, the retweet button, the like button. So retweet created this. Now you had a pathway to, for a, a tweet or a story, whatever to go super viral. So you're not just talking about a few of your friends who follow you, but now if they retweet and then you know, when you're reading through Twitter or Facebook, a lot of times you're going to get, you're, you're going to get something that was uh, shared or liked or tweeted or retweeted. 
from a friend and it may or may not have anything to do with you, but the, why is the algorithm giving you those instead of, you know, a, a like of a cat picture? Well, because that's the one that got the most play on the platform. And so the algorithm is going to shoot it to you as much as possible. And what we've all learned, and I think is readily apparent at this point is that posts, if posts that are most often retweeted, those that are liked or shared are those most often that trigger emotions. So it's not the, the picture of the restaurant dish that you got tonight. It's, you know, the, the other side are a bunch of demons and this is why, and this is, this is our gotcha, you know, like I, I, I call Twitter, like, you know, the, the gotcha platform because it's just both sides. It's just this ongoing game of, uh, uh, yeah, but you did this. Yeah, but you did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's, what's crazy about it too, is it, 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 it's not just that emotionalism leads to virality, but it's, it's like, it's all really hateful emotions it's either look at this idiot you know who's on the other side and that gets retweeted but then even when it's something joyful of your own side like yeah i agree i'll retweet this just to shut those people up on the other side you know it's, yeah, it's exactly. really it's, it's even when you're retweeting something you agree with it's it feels like you're spiking the football or or just you know kicking dirt in somebody's face it's never like like you said, like the pictures, of the cat pictures, that was early internet, man. Like cute cats and like law cat talk and like the, the sort of silly stuff that people got into and in, in some of the early internet that was really popular. It was like innocent laughs and just, you know, cleverness and fun. But this, I think what height really focused on that I hadn't before is just how different the like and share and, and retweet kind of thing makes the internet experience because i i was on facebook from i guess like 06 or so mm. um not long after they opened it up to uh, first you had to have an edu email like it was it was really meant for students um but then they opened it up to everyone like right after i graduated too so i was like all right i get on and it, it's like oh cool my I can see pictures that my cousin put up of her kid's birthday party. It's yeah, nice. exactly. you know, like some of that stuff's still on there and it's great. You know, if somebody lives in a different state, you still can see them and the thing, you know, but that was mostly what Facebook was back then. It's like, like he's saying, you know, there was no, there was no algorithm. It was just stuff that happened one after the other and they weren't trying to maximize anything. You know, it was just like, oh, here's what your friend said today. Okay. But it's hard to remember that change because it's been 10 years now and it's and it's everything every social media site is driven by that sort of response it's like those rats that click a bar to get a little zap in the brain that makes them feel good except what we're doing is getting a zap in the brain that makes us feel mad but like in, yeah. a, right, in like a righteous way but it's 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 not even you don't go away feeling happy you sit you know i i don't look at social media after 10 o'clock anymore it makes me mad. I don't want to be. Able, I don't, I, I'm trying to get to bed. 100%. You know, like I don't want to lie in bed and at midnight see a tweet and like, oh, that idiot. What did he say? You know, like I, I don't want that. I'm still on there, but I, you know, I, I feel like I have to limit it because it, it's making us like, it's people think the algorithm is driving us to be radical, but I think it's really just we bring this negativity to it as as a as a human species, and this just like distills it, boils it down and, and feeds it back to us. Like, yeah, you want this here. 
give you some of this every day. Keep clicking. And it, it's, uh, it, it's weird. Cause it's just, it's not like a virus from, you know, outside or something. It's not like an alien invasion. It's, it's ourselves mm-hmm. distilled and reflected back on us. And, and it's made us really awful. Yeah, so I think that's I think that's totally right, and that's on the kind of the consumption side. On the actual uh, production side, those people who are the most prolific tweeters, you know, we know this the statistic that uh, you know, like ten percent of of people on Twitter are doing like you know eighty percent of the tweets or something like that. So the overwhelming majority are coming from the same from the same crew. And he he points out, and I think we all know this that. Uh, he says users are guided by their past experience of reward and punishment. In other words, this is this it's become a performance platform. Mm-hmm. Now, it used to be that I I don't know when I joined, maybe 2010 or 2011, something like that. And then I used it as you said to keep track of my cousins, like their kids, like we were all having kids, and that's kind of fun and that kind of thing. And you're kind of moving away from sending Christmas cards and so forth, but what it's moved to now is it's, it's a, a platform for performance and the folks that, I mean, it gets kind of boring actually on, tw- on Twitter. You have to kind of change up who you're following because they, it's, it's, they essentially perform the same act you know, mm-hmm. over and over again. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, people learn there's only a small percentage of people who are actually doing the tweeting and, uh, Facebook is a little bit more um, broad based, although at this point it's becoming like the obviously at this point it's the the platform of choice for the boomers and uh, you know people who are older than us. Mm-hmm. And my kids don't even know the first thing about Facebook. They, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> they barely even know it exists, you know, because whatever the it's TikTok, you know, it's it's uh, YouTube Shorts stuff like that. That's what they're into. Uh, my wife very much uh, all about uh, Instagram and Instagram. He doesn't talk about this, but I think Instagram is a little bit different in that we're talking, this particular article is focused on the political ramifications, which is, which I think is totally right. The other ramifications and Instagram and Facebook are the leaders in this for, for women and for females, for girls is, you know, it's, it's still performance and it's, it's this facade of a perfect life and everything's going right. And I have, you know, I was able to make this beautiful dish and all my kids are wearing mm-hmm. beautiful clothes and they're perfect and happy. And, and you're yeah. like, how does that happen? Or, you know, the FOMO, you know, everyone's hanging out except me. And, you know, it's like yeah. the one time they've hung out in two years and they all took a picture of it, but it feels like it's happening all the time. Yeah. It, that's a weird kind of thing. Cause it's not like bullying. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a strange thing i i think it like you said not to be too reductive about it but i think it does affect women and girls differently than it affects men and boys and you know he talks about some of the rise in teenage uh depression and anxiety and things like that coinciding with the rise of uh when smartphones came out so that basically every teenage girl can now look at instagram and feel insecure about herself you know because there's these beautiful models with these photoshopped shoots and whatnot and it looks like this fabulous life and you know and that's, it's hard enough to be a teenager, you know, when you're trying to like figure out like, who am I even? I'm becoming an adult. Like, where do I fit in? And, you know, am I good enough? Do I look right? You know, and now you're competing with a billion people instead of just like the other dumb kids at your school, you know? <laughs> so it's, right. it's, it's, it's awful. And, uh, it, there's, there's so much of that, that we've just, 
he, he quotes Zuckerberg, uh, the CEO of Facebook, talking about like how he wants to rewire humanity to share knowledge in a different way. And I don't think I don't think Zuckerberg meant that malevolently, but it certainly turned out that way. You know, it turned out to be like, yeah, we kind of are rewiring our own brains in a way that is mm-hmm. super unhealthy. One thing you said, like changing up who you follow and because it's all the same thing all the time. I mean, I, I have a friend of mine who, you know, he has political ideas, but he doesn't want that mess in his life on Twitter. So he, he says he just follows sports stuff and Dungeons and Dragons accounts. But he says even them half the time they start to get woke and they start you know talking mm, about right. like you know every, because that's how you go that's how you go big and do numbers and go right, viral right, you know right. he's like man I don't I just want to read read about the hobbies I like you know and the the sports teams I like I don't want any of this but that's I think like like Heights saying here the reward system you find out oh if I say this I'm gonna get a thousand retweets well you know who doesn't want to be popular it's 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 a real easy thing to lead yourself into. There's a vanity mm-hmm. aspect to it. And sure, we all would like, we like the idea that thousands and thousands of people are just waiting to hear what we have to say, right? Who wouldn't be flattered by that? But the problem is it's it, it's only true if you say the same dumb thing that everybody on the far left or the far right is saying on Twitter. You just If you just say that same sort of bunk, uh, yeah, you'll get the retweets. Everyone will like you. But, you know, it's it's such a weird the the performance aspect of it made me think of Yuval Levin's book which we keep coming back to um mm-hmm. just about the difference between performance and formation you know how institutions used to form us and shape us and make us better people and now we're they're just stages for performance but that's i mean what twitter i think never even affected to be a, a formative place it was never it was never meant to encourage any higher goal or be anything other than a place for performance and boy ha, has it ever you know that's that's all people do on there is is preen and you know walk around like a peacock virtually and it nothing good can come of that it doesn't make anybody better and it makes it it makes most of us worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, this is the business model for basically all journalism at this point, too. I mean, the New York Times still every day has a dozen articles, either columnists or, you know, supposedly like uh, objective journalism about whatever Trump is. <laughs> like, uh-huh. you, you could almost forget that Trump was alive, except that the New York Times will just never let you forget. That. But anyway... So, uh, so he has, he uses this metaphor of the dart gun because basically he's, he says we're shooting at each other, but, uh, it, but it's, it doesn't kill. So he uses this metaphor of a dart gun that doesn't, doesn't kill, but can maybe hurt. He says the dart guns of social media give more power to trolls and provocateurs while silencing good citizens. A small subset of people of social media platforms are highly concerned with gaining status and are willing to use aggression to do so. That's what we've just been talking about. It allows a small number of aggressive people to attack a much larger larger set of victims. Even a small number of jerks were able to dominate discussion forums. So the point here being, this is kind of the birth of the Twitter mob, right? Or the Facebook mob. Those, I think it's more much more potent and easier on Twitter. But you have somebody who shares an opinion and you did it's remarkable to me how many people are just sitting there waiting 
you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you, you, you see the same people who answer because especially if you're in more of a niche kind of like world, uh, you know, like, uh, the state political world or something like that. So you see, but you know, it's the same folks nationally too. It's, you're literally like, have you just been sitting at your computer waiting for someone to say something that you could jump on? But the answer is yes, they have. And so, you know, their entire lives are like just stuck on this thing. And part of you is like, well, why do we care what these basically losers are worried about? But the answer is he's, he, he kind of describes here is that, Unlike in real life, where if you have one obnoxious kid, it's like he can be ignored or she can be ignored. On Twitter, like one obnoxious woman can really like pull the whole entire, you know, Twitter mob on top of you very quickly, you know, just by being just constantly trolling, constantly waiting. And it just takes a small number of people to have such a, a huge outsized impact and he makes the point here too that that becomes even even more uh, poignant when it's your own side doing the attacking. And what we mean by that is, you know, let's say you know you and I are conservative, we're Republican, and so forth, and we say something about the 2020 election that doesn't, you know, that some folks on our side don't agree with. Then we get completely tackled. Mm. I think this is far worse on the on the left. And I definitely think that Twitter is like two thirds, maybe three fourths radical left progressives and maybe one fourth uh, conservatives. But, um, you know, like it's basically the thought police. And if you if you if you break the the agreed upon narrative, then you're going to get completely hammered and completely tackled. And those are the most vicious because those are then you feel like you're getting attacked by your own friends. And I think that's. Facebook does this, but I think Twitter is is even much worse at it. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's a good point he makes in here is that it it's yeah. If I tweet something and then somebody I know is very far left tells me that I'm wrong or an idiot or whatever, I I don't care, right? Yeah. I mean, I I knew we were going to disagree. That's fine, but yeah, that the idea that if you if you stray even one tiny bit from the your tribe's orthodoxy, that you're going to get darted. Uh, who wants to do who wants the aggravation i mean i i it it's easier just to stay silent and that's there's that um spiral of silence theory that um i forget the political philosopher it was a, a german woman in the 70s came up with it i believe just the idea that if once there starts to be this thing that people an opinion is seen as you can't bring it up then people start to be silent if they have that opinion. And then it reinforces itself because then people, other people who hold that same opinion, well, no one ever talks about it. They only talk about the other side. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if I say it, they're going to think I'm like a weirdo or a freak or a radical or something. And I think, I mean, you see that in the trans debate, especially because, I mean, I shouldn't even call it a debate. It's not a debate. You, you got to, you know, if you say the wrong things and use the wrong pronouns, you just get banned from social media. The end. Yeah, you're hateful. You're a transphobe. You're—I mean, these right. just just outrageous, like name calling and labeling. It's just where does that come from? Yeah, and you people know? are people are questioning not even the whole thing, not even saying, "Oh, yeah, you shouldn't dress that way or call yourself this name." Even so, just saying things like, "Oh, you know, you sh- maybe we shouldn't give kids hormones that have never been tested in any long term study." Yeah, and they're like transphobe, hateful. You know, I mean, even radical leftists like 
pretty pretty far left feminists sometimes end up on the wrong end of the stick. The things that that getting the kind of abuse that only we conservatives are used to getting online, because they and it's worse even for them because it's their friends turning on them. And it's you know it's he's talking about getting shot by darts. They're all getting shot in the back. We're getting shot yeah. in the front. We see it coming. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. But it's 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 true. And I, at the point that height makes, I think it, you know, dart doesn't kill anybody. It just hurts. Well. That's true. And that's like sometimes you see somebody complaining about getting abuse on social media and you're like, whatever, dude, it's just words. Just close the laptop. Yeah. But, you know, it it will make you close the laptop and it will make you just never talk again. And I, I read a read a book by a guy named Chris, Chris Bain who wrote about social media. Uh, he's a sociologist at, I think, Princeton. And uh, he was talking about this same thing about how people just drop out moderates and even like center right and center left like people who wouldn't who maybe only vote for one party not moderate in that sense of a swing voter but they're moderate in the sense that they're just like not a hundred percent hardcore every day with their side and that you know you just re- you get you get enough abuse you get enough of these little darts at you, you just say you know what i'm out i i don't want this anymore this is not something i want to do for free mm-hmm. in my leisure time and it it just it adds to it. It's that spiraling of like even normal moderate opinions don't get mentioned anymore. Only extreme stuff from the left versus extreme stuff from the right. And it makes the whole thing gross. Yeah. And I think it's pretty remarkable how often we're, we end up following kind of the, we'll call them the apostates of the other side. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I, I have friends who are Democrats and they're constantly reposting, you know, Bill Crystal or Adam Kinzinger, you know, Liz Cheney. <laughs> and you're like, wow, okay. And then meanwhile, though, I, I have to admit that I'm following like all these uh, traditional liberals in New York who are just up in arms, mostly moms who are just up in arms about the mask mandates, for example. And, the, you know, those who are, yeah. who are running counter or, or Bill Maher, who in a million years I never thought I would, you know, be a fan <laughs> of, you know, uh, you know, Elon Musk, who should be an absolute icon hero of the left for Tesla, for, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I just think that uh, it's it's incredible how how reputations and, you know, where you find yourself on the political spectrum can be completely topsy-turvy when it comes to Twitter. Because if you have if you have one apostate view, for example... But he says, uh, many of America's key institutions in the mid to late 2010s got stupider en masse because social media instilled in their members a chronic fear of getting darted. This is the major problem today, to be honest with you, I think. The shift was most pronounced in universities, scholarly associations, creative industries, political organizations at every level. So we, we see this, and when it comes to following apostates, I follow a ton of these where you know they, they used to be just mainstream liberal, democratic academics or something and now they find themselves on substack or whatever because mm. they're they had some some minor apostate view you know which might be like they actually support free speech for example or don't think that people should be canceled or shunned but the point here being that institutions in america have lost their ability to police themselves because you know they're just becoming completely subject and hijacked by a small group of very loud people. And uh, we're seeing that with some some uh, iconic corporations these days. And we're seeing it with 
uh, definitely in the academy. We're definitely seeing it uh, in even in Hollywood. You know, uh, suddenly, if you don't if if you don't meet a certain checklist of physical characteristics, then you can't even be eligible for an award at this point. Yeah. And not that I care who wins an award, and I've never cared uh, about the about Hollywood, but you know, like it's just it's fascinating and. And I have to admit, fun to watch them completely eat themselves. But it does happen on the ride as well. And uh, but it's our he's he's pointing to these uh, these institutions of culture, you know, that actually are are making major decisions, not political decisions, but cultural. And they're 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 the ones who are moving us. They're the ones who are you know pushing the the whatever the latest uh, transgender fad is or so forth. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really remarkable to see, like, if, if you disagree with any aspect of it or have a different view, then folks who were traditional liberal Democrats are now being, you know, pushed to the side and, uh, they're sort of taking the, the same heat that, like you said, conservatives have forever. What's, what seems so crazy about this to me, he talks about how universities were some of the first places to fall into this kind of like perennial fear of being slammed on social media. And that, that seems wild to me because if I had tenure, I wouldn't care what anybody said about me. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's the same thing as like billionaires who want to be trendy too. You know, I want to, I mean, I, I always thought if I had a billion dollars, then I also wouldn't care what anyone said about me because what are you going to do? I'm already rich. You're, like, you're going to fire me. Well, that's okay. I own my own thing. You know, th- there's at that point you can, do what you want, you know, within the law, but you can do what you want, I thought. But those people seem to be subject, and we've talked about this on previous episodes too, just they're subject to the same social pressures that we are. It's just a different society they're hanging out with than, than the you know regular people that everybody else is hanging out with. You know, they want their fellow uh, rich people and trend makers to, to like them. Mm-hmm. That, that seems wild to me because I, I kind of, I thought every billionaire would be like Elon Musk and just do whatever he wants, you know, but not, they're not. And it's the same thing with college profession. I thought, you know, you get that tenure and then you can, you know, say what you think is true. That's the whole point of it is that you don't get bullied because no one's, no one's going to fire you for having the wrong opinion. But, but the uh, amazing thing is they're being bullied by the students, by the kids. And, yeah, and I, I think in, in companies and in, you know, in all of, uh, journalism, like it's, it's the new employees. It's, uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, youngest millennials, like the gen Y kids, kids who don't know a thing about anything. Right. And, and they have, he says the, the older liberal leaders confused and fearful, the leaders rarely challenge the activists or their non-liberal narrative in which life at every institution is an eternal battle among identity groups. He says the universal charge against people, who disagree with this narrative is not traitor. Like it's not saying like, Hey, you're not one of us. Get on, get on the, uh, on the train with us. It's you're a racist. You're a transphobe. You're a Karen, you know, like just go straight to these just nasty, nasty things. And, and, uh, I, I guess I should be ashamed to admit that I had, uh, one of these today too, with, uh, with this liberal woman who's, uh, you know, who's a, a constant like Twitter, uh, I, I guess she never gets off it, even in the middle of the night. But, uh, you know, she said all these nasty things about our Republican convention here in the state. And and I, I said, that's just defamatory and not not true at all. Like, 
unsubstantiated, give, give some examples. And of course she didn't, she went straight to you're a racist, you're a transphobe, you're a hater, you know, and you're, you, you just, you say vile, nasty things. You're like, woman, dude, like you gotta take a breath. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're going from zero to like frothing at the mouth in, uh, in, in, in like a second. So I don't know. I don't get it, but, but we've seen it. We see it every single day almost. And, and it's amazing that these, these leaders of these institutions who are also themselves like liberals, like don't push back against children usually. Um, but they don't, they, they let them get walk all over them. It seems weird because uh, you hear a lot of people say, you know, Twitter's not real life and it's not right. That it, as we've, he, he cites some figures here about how many people actually post and how many people are actually even on there. And we've seen these in other studies too. It, it's not that many people. It's not, there's not 300 million in America using it and commenting every day. It's, it's some fringe folks that make up a lot of those, like the person you're describing who just hate follows a bunch of people and then tweets angry stuff at them. And yeah, it's, we, we have plenty of those on our side too. I'm sure. Cause <laughs> when I go, when I go too far away from the right, I get, I get those darts too. You know, if I, if I write something that, is a rhino article or whatever. And, you know, I, so I see them too. And it's, it just doesn't, it's unrepresentative, but so when we say Twitter's not real, it's not, but if these institutions, these colleges and whatever think it's real, then it kind of becomes real in a weird way because they're all being governed by something that we all should know better than to be governed by. It's, I don't know if the emperor's new clothes is the right, metaphor but if if everybody's looking at this thing and saying oh yeah it's very important you know you know some some user under an anonymous handle says that you're racist so you have to go apologize to the world for this thing that somebody said you said that isn't actually even racial in any way but you know this got like 50 likes or a thousand likes or whatever it is and now you now a, a tenured professor has to apologize like what? Where? How yeah. did we? How did we get? And it, like you said, I mean, it's the it's the the kids that who should be going to school to learn things are now trying to. I mean, it's 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 an exaggeration to compare it to the Red Guards and the Cultural Revolution, but it's the same vibe. It's Not just, much. It, Not I much. I mean, nobody's killing anyone, but it's the same vibe. It's the same idea of like the youth are pure, the olds are weak, and we need to purify them by our you know, bigger for the cause of the far left. It, you know, I mean, what happened in the cultural revolution was actually uh, quite horrible, but this isn't as bad as that, but it's definitely that same attitude. It's just in a sort of farcical social media way re- recreated. Mm-hmm. So to your to point about real life, it absolutely is not real life. It's not even close to real life, but what makes it real and what makes it real actually tangible in the real world is the people who are on it are obsessed with it, and this is what they eat, drink, and sleep all day long. He makes the point that the research has shown that the people who are on Twitter are overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly uh, highly educated, and that's for all sides of the political spectrum. Now, I think other studies have also shown that uh, that two-thirds or more of the most prolific Twitter posters are on the left. And I definitely think, 
I've said this already, but uh, just to repeat myself, I definitely think that it's overwhelmingly liberal. Even though there is a strong um, conservative contingent, I think that without question, there's just so many more. But the real life comes into play because journalists are on it all day. They're tweeting things. And, you know, look, I'm glad they do because some who are serious journalists, especially in Congress and so forth, that I trust and rely on, and it's very helpful information for my daily job. I, I'm really grateful for what they do. But you have folks who are constantly like checking Twitter, not just to find out what's going on, but also to kind of find out like, what's the narrative today? You know, like yeah. we, we all have to be in alignment. You know, we all have to be singing from the same song sheet. And it's incredible how often when something blows and uh, and you see the left, especially all these journalists, and they're all using the same vocabulary even. And you're like, oh, good. Everybody got the memo. I'm glad to see that. But that's how it becomes real life because then then the next step is to write an article about it or you know, the next step is to be on a, sh- on a cable news show saying like, this, this is what matters and this is what happened sort of thing. And so then it seeps into into, into real life, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it, something fake that became real because we all believed in it. And that, that's another troubling aspect of just the human condition. But he gets into, he gets into some solutions here. So we should, before we run out of time, talk about them. Let's do it. So the first one he says is that, um, he says, he says legislative branch was designed to require compromise. Yet Congress, social media, and cable news networks have co-evolved such that any legislator who reaches across the aisle may face outrage within hours from the extreme wing of his own party. That's absolutely true. That's it's part of what made makes legislatures such a mess. But his solution is that we should. Uh, End closed party primaries, replacing them with a single nonpartisan open primary from which the top several candidates advance to the general election using ranked choice voting. He, that's that's what Alaska's doing now, and he mentions that. That's and Alaska put this in place because I think they wanted to have an election that didn't just involve a far right Republican and a far left Democrat. That's a laudable goal. I guess I don't totally buy this. I think we'll see how it goes. I mean, we'll let's see what happens. Alaska's running this this year. Maybe, maybe it'll produce something magical, and we'll have a a, a, season, uh, a reasonable moderate elected who is still conservative enough to win Alaska, but is not a lunatic. That would be nice. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, California does this, and yeah, uh, I don't see a lot of moderates coming out of California. Can, and no, you, you almost right. couldn't even name one if you wanted to. So yeah, I I just I don't buy this as a system. I think. I mean, I, and anyway, uh, sorry to cut you off, but I'm not entirely sure that the answer is what we need is more moderates. Basically, to me, what a moderate means is someone who's totally willing to spend money, you know, all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moderate means like deal making, like as long as I get mine, then you can have yours kind of thing. And I think there's there definitely is a place for deal making 100 percent and there should mm-hmm. be deals being made. But I'm not entirely sure that our solution to the, you know, to the nastiness is going to be solved by just having, you know, more money being spent. Because I honestly don't think that open primaries is going to have any effect whatsoever on on Twitter or Facebook. I mean, that's what really jumped out at me is like, yeah, okay, we had this long conversation about Twitter, about Facebook, and about uh, social media and how and how it's uh, it's bringing out the worst in people. 
So let's end closed primaries. Like, okay, that's just not even remotely related. So I don't understand how that's going to fix the dialogue, you know, in the yeah. country. Yeah. I think what you're saying, I mean, I, I agree. Congress n- needs to have compromise. It was always intended to have compromise. I don't think the founders ever thought that uh, a big majority of Congress would agree on all issues all the time. I mean, we, we were more of a fractious Republic back then, but you you should still show up with the principles. Right. Exactly. And then you compromise. Maybe you have to meet a guy halfway in order to get your thing accomplished and that, and you know, you, you get a little way towards your goal. You don't get everything, but you get something. But I mean, just saying we should elect moderates. It's like, that's, that means just everybody's got his finger in the wind saying, right. Exactly. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's unprincipled, honestly, but, and you're, I take your point. That has nothing to do with Twitter. <laughs> so then his other remedy is uh, is redistricting. We, we could talk about this for hours. I think this is pretty naive. He, 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 does, he is so good, and I am a huge John Haidt fan, and I feel like some of this thought is just well-developed, and I've loved his books, especially The Righteous Mind, I think is, uh, is, is really a, a landmark piece of, piece of research. But you know, his, his understanding of, of redistricting. And he basically says we should, we should have nonpartisan, uh, commissions do the drawing. Like anyone who's paying attention this year can see that that didn't work. So (laughs) it's just, it's, I don't know. It's just one more piece of evidence. So I, I don't want to completely dismiss him, but you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't the most well-developed, you know, thinking that he has here. I think that I hope Kyle, that one of the remedies for this is long form podcasts like conservative minds. I mean, I'm not saying that we're not, uh, we don't have a point of view. We do, but we try very hard to put forth the best argument for the other side. We've read the other Mm -hmm. side's books. We've done it in good faith, put forward their best argument. You know, we're not, we're not in the business of straw manning any, anything, uh, at conservative minds. I mean, we want to, we want to debate the ideas in their best, most, you know, fulsome form. And I think we've done that. I think so. I, we try our best, you know, and I, but I think there's a, there's a place for those kind of podcasts. I just wish it were a, a bigger place. And I think, you know, sharing a tweet re, or uh, retweeting a tweet or sharing a Facebook post uh, takes a second. So I think it's easier. You know, if yeah. you see something radical, like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll retweet that. That's an extreme version of what I like. But yeah, this podcast, you got to listen for 40 minutes. That's tough. But I mean, there's some good ones out there. I, I listened to a podcast the other couple months ago, one of Barry Weiss's podcasts with, uh, she had Caitlin Flanagan on who writes for the Atlantic and it was about abortion and they're both pro-choice and I am not, I mean, I'm very pro-life. But it was still one of the more thoughtful podcasts I'd heard on the subject because they, I, th- I felt like they really tried to understand the other side. And that's yeah. that's rare. Um, I think that's what's uh, – but that's sort of like reaching out to the other side or at least accepting that the other side might have be acting in good faith. That's the kind of thing that gets her squeezed out of the New York Times, right, because she's not marching to the, the beat of the party drum. But that, I, th- I thought – that sort of thing. And it's like, it didn't change my mind, but it made me happy that somebody is at least out there trying and trying to find common ground. But there's, I don't know, maybe Substack will 
grow and maybe some of these independent podcasts will grow and, and, and maybe our own listenership will grow, but it, I don't, I think that's, that's a solution, but it, it takes time and it takes yeah. people have to have a, a nuance idea or to, to actually really think about the other side and not just say they're trying to destroy America and say, well, why do they think this is good? That takes time to think and it takes effort and it's, and, and, People aren't aren't on social media to take a college course. They're on there to, I don't know, waste some time for a few minutes. So it, it, I, I think people don't put the effort in, but I don't know if they ever will. But I, I, it would be good for it would be good for all of us if we all tried to maybe just listen to somebody who disagrees with you, but who does so in a way that is not not hateful and not out of bad faith. Just they're yeah just honestly wrong that that's all i want just, <laughs> i i like to i like to read some of these people on the left or i can tell they're they're they really believe it they're just not right yeah well said all right we're pretty late yeah so that's it that's height catch us next time <laughs>